You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Thank you. Thank you both to Frank and Julian for, for inviting me. And I'm going to talk about uh, Mukadu and, um, and a bit uh, based on uh, what we already heard from Fred. Maybe, maybe we're going to go from data to information to knowledge to who knows where. We'll see what happens. <clears throat> I'm Matt Conkey. Congratulations. Uh, she got her Lifetime Achievement Award yesterday, so that's very cool. Um, uh, just uh, one thing we always do is just to give a bit of a warning um, whenever we do any presentations um, that involve indigenous content. So I don't plan to show anything sensitive, but it's always better to warn. And just a, another point that, so we started, we had, another, we had a birthday too. The Center for Digital Archaeology started five years ago. Um, I was born at SA in Sacramento in 2011. And uh, we've been trying to do papos apps, including Codify and Mukadu for creating content that can be archival so that it can go into repositories and hopefully persist. Uh, today, my pleasure to talk specifically about Mukadu 2.0, which also celebrated a kind of a birthday. We released it as open source, completely um, renovated and, and built out millions of dollars, taxpayers' dollars spent, <laughs> tens of thousands of hours of time. But it's out there, it's free, it's open source, and it's available to you now. Um, it's been a collaboration of some fantastic people um, and, and organizations, Washington State, Kim Kristen, who I absolutely must mention, some fantastic funders, um, various developers of just fantastic quality. But what's most important of, of all is the various hundreds of organizations and, and communities worldwide that have participated in this um, ground up uh, process. So with Mukadu 2.0, um, thanks to Jane Anderson, who's a fantastic lawyer, um, we basically have the shortest terms of service ever, and that is that it's yours. There's no claim of any form of ownership of any of the data that's ever put into uh, Mukadu's site, and the sites themselves are portable, so they're following a standard that's been um, checked by various data librarians, but the idea is that everything should be completely and totally owned by the people who are... Um, whose content it is. So I'm going to talk about some success stories with Mukadu, um, some challenges we have when we're, when we're working with uh, collaborations, especially with indigenous communities worldwide, and some ideas around active curation today. So let's start with um, Vanuatu. This is why we do what we do. This is what gets us up in the morning and keeps us, keeps us up late. Um, so this was just a couple of days ago. Vanuatu got hit by the second earthquake in, in the week of this level of magnitude. And you may have known about Cyclone Pam, which almost wiped it off the planet last year. Um, displaced over 75,000 people and, of course, disturbed a lot of, a lot of sites. So the first Mukadi site we're going to see is the Southern Vanuatu Mission Archaeology Project uh, run by James Flexner. Um, and if you look here, um, you'll see three languages. It's in English, French, and I can't even read it, but a third language is there. Um, and uh, it's and 95% of the content is completely open access now, and the things that aren't will never be because they're protected rock art sites, or things that really can never be seen by the public. Next up, the Southern Red Sea Archaeological Histories Project, um, run by Chinsu Pearl and Jerry Mike Harrower. Um, the site of Beta Samadhi specifically is an active archaeological research project. And here, uh, we're also seeing it in Eng English, Emirate, um, uh, and Tigray. So check this out. Kind of fun. So an active archaeological project. Uh, the artifacts, um, the, the active 
um, excavation records are all being put into the site. And of course, it's fantastic because it's in a language that everyone who's working in Ethiopia can actually understand. Um, they will be returning to the, the field next month um, and using Codify to bring it completely paperless. Next up, we have the Santa Ana Tavela project, uh, which is being run by Stacy King, uh, who's here. And this was our first foray into, into making a site completely bilingual, so it's in English and in Spanish, uh, which is important for the locals there the, who, whose internet access is really horrible. So ultimately, the, if, if this goes forward, this is a point that localized archives are absolutely critically important to have. Um, within it, they're exploring and, and, and playing with th 3D models as well. So you know, integration with things like Sketchfab and the ability to have the models is, 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 um, is pretty cool. Last house on the hill, I see Vilika here. So this is the, uh, the, the Chatohuyuk project that we got to work on with Ruth Tringham, who's not here uh, today. And um, this has been an amazing process because what we're seeing with Ruth, who's retired now, she's spending all her time finding more stuff. She found the original video of the excavation of the, of the dagger, the first dagger found since Mellart, and was able to discover that on some old drive and stick it in herself, and it's, it's been really cool. It's an opportunity to point out that these, these feature records, where she's gone through the process of really in, in enhancing these records and making them really wonderful. Um, but the point is, is that some of these records that would be public are things like burials, which have a sensitivity. Uh, so she's added a protocol here. This is point out the differential access. This is public access, but at least there's a warning that there are burials. Um, to our knowledge, in Turkey, at the site we were working on, showing burial imagery is not an issue. But I will tell you right now, if I were to show the slide with several of the folks I work with, I will never be able to work with them again. So this is a really big deal. Um, I like this a lot because we're seeing that we, we can pull, pull all the embedded metadata. So if you do follow the good practices that ADS and TDR teach you, um, we can go ahead and take all that rich embedded metadata right, right from images and add it in. And then we have these curated relationships between all, all sorts of different things within the archive. Moving on to an indigenous example, this is the Aludic Museum. And there are now only 33 fluent native Aludic speakers left alive. And they have decided to put um, about, it's 99%, just about eight, eight, only eight files are not public access, but basically all of this fantastic material um, from native speakers to preserve the Aludic language. Including a, a map interface, you can go completely uh, to, to various locations and see where um, these f uh, files are being uh, produced and what areas they're talking about. The rich uh, metadata on the, on the left, on the right-hand side, and then some speaker profiles. So you get to actually meet who the speakers are, um, and you can go and see directly the, the items that they either contributed to or that they recorded were recorded by. We're really proud of this project. Ruth, in fact, is up with the Karuk tribe right now uh, with one of our members doing another training <laughs> with the Karuk tribe who launched the Sipna Digital Library uh, just last week. It's a fantastic um, um, resource for everybody, um, and all the materials effectively are, are being made available as well. And this is, the, this, this is really the point. This took about a year and a half to go from complete and total no trust to virtually all the material being available um, openly, which is really great. This is actually a pretty interesting example. This is a, a paper by Alfred Krober. Um, and you have, to get, you have to get a login and password because some of these materials are actually covered by copyright. This, one, this particular one is not. But the idea of, of being able to have a 
heterogeneous archive that can be used locally in an area where they barely have internet and over 80% of the people who live there are under the poverty level is kind of the real point of, of today's story. And so to help them, the um, IMLS um, supported this initiative we started called the Sustainable Heritage Network, which is a really amazing uh, network of physical face-to-face -face workshops, online tutorials that are then put into a, a Powered by Mukherjee's site that also has differential access, which means that um, there are particular types of archival things that you need to do or curatorial practices that are still tightly held by, by individuals um, or communities. For example, the way that you might um, repair a boat. <laughs> you know? So those particular practices can be shared between communities, but there will be some um, differential access applied to them. Here, there's a, some really amazing resources. The Library of Congress um, uh, su supported us in doing a set of training around digitization, around um, photogrammetry and, and 3D practices, most of which I cribbed directly from people in this room, so thank all of you. Um, but um, it is a really great resource, and it's really made for the, and it's, um, the primary um, community that's using this is called the Association of Tribal Archives, Libraries, and Museums. So if you don't know what that is, you really should check that out. Local contexts is a traditional knowledge labels, so it's a non-legally binding concept of being able to apply labels to cultural content, including content that is out of copyright or in the public domain, much of which was never owned by native people in the first place. So there are examples where, when, where public domain is actually not a great thing, and when it comes to um, native Americans and other in indigenous people worldwide, that would be one of them. <laughs> The thing is that just like copyright law, Jane Anderson re has, has realized for all of us just how hard it is to understand how to do all of these things. And it's difficult for communities to figure out which uh, labels they may even want to use. <coughs> Excuse me. So we're building a, a chooser that can be used in, in a facilitated uh, workshop where the uh, communities can choose the labels that they want to use. And then starting with the boilerplate that's been written by Jane and others, can change it and get a sense of, of how they want to use their own labels. A fantastic example with the Scalots and Stolo um, tribes in Canada, they come up with, they've come up with an, a complete statement of how they are using their traditional knowledge labels, and um, we're basically modeling their behavior <laughs> to, to bring this out to the world. Um, we were um, co-awarded a grant with the, by the NEH with Jane, which is fantastic, and NYU, um, to try and experiment with the Library of Congress and others to see what would happen if we could start to apply labels to things like this, the Library of Congress's actual catalog itself, and they've been a fantastic partner. But we're talking about materials where, where individuals who are not the authors can suddenly, and communities can finally have a voice in their own materials by having the labels right there on the record at the citation level. So this is pretty amazing and unprecedented, and there will be a nice public um, discussion about this. I guess I got to scoop them a little bit. Um, at the DPLA uh, next week. All right. Um, anyone can get Mukadu. You can fork the code at GitHub. You can download it, use it yourself. Um, there's a new partnership with Reclaim. So if you want to have a, a hosted environment that's 100 gigabytes per year for $100, um, there's an archival option with us. And we're the, we're the ones that are helping to make these sites really kind of pretty and wonderful and doing more of the project stuff. But if you're interested in Mukadu, it's it is yours by all means. Uh, go get it. <laughs> so, this slide represents all the hundreds of projects that I can never show you. 
So this is the, this is the other real point of my, of my talk today. And that is that while we do have a kind of a, a binary conversation a lot about like private versus open or open access versus shut and closed, it's a bit more complicated than that when we're dealing with um, indigenous communities. First of all, analog permissions like this. This has a physical file drawer <clears throat> that says men's restricted only knowledge that works perfectly fine in that, com in that community. No one who doesn't have access to that is going to open up that drawer. Um, so the continuum really isn't about open and closed. There are other practices of avoidance, for example, in Australia of death, ritual status, country, kin group, and gender that also need to be thought about, thought about when we're putting out content openly. <clears throat> so the whole point of Mukut is that it is a safekeeping place or a daily bag where content goes in, but it also has to come out and circulate. So another continuum we may want to consider is something that may look more like this. This is the continuum that I hear a lot. The idea that things actually don't start necessarily on the public end as a goal or on the private end, but that there should be an affordance and capability for that being okay. And this right now is not okay if we're talking about public funding, for example. Great. So thank you. Um, basically, Fred answered this for me. I'm not even talking about data today. I'm actually talking about stories. But I'm just gonna give you a couple of quick examples of, of how complex this is. We went into physical workshops in Australia in, in the fall. There is Kelly giving one. And this item was uploaded. This item is a video that shows someone who died the week before, okay? So this happened, and, and the people in, in the workshop with us knew that woman. Um, and so that's the kind of thing that's really challenging. So I'm gonna point out a couple more um, unfortunate, unfortunate or inconvenient truths for us. Remember, we're dealing with federally recognized tribes. Um, they, um, they have a right, a legal right to self-governance and tribal sovereignty. So that's really, uh, it's been the, the uh, completely different way of thinking about how we should be uh, approaching these, these situations. Um, it's interesting to think about 193 nation states in the UN. We have 566 nation states right here amongst us. So I'm just going to point out this one last thing. Um, this is Article 31. I find this to be really interesting. And this has become the way that we kind of the carry on call how we work. So indigenous peoples have the right to maintain, control, protect, and develop their cultural heritage, traditional knowledge, and traditional cultural expressions. Um, and then, in conjunction with that, the states should be taking an effective measure to recognize and protect the exercise of these rights. So, I, again, I second what, what we heard today from Fred. There has to be a public um, doingness to help this be true, to make archivalness be something that we can all enjoy and, and do. And, it's, and it goes double for those who have been, had their rights effectively uh, taken from them. Um, this is uh, kind of the traditional way that digital curation happens. And just to point out that we're exploring different ways of making this a bit more complex. Not quite as complex as the DCC, although that is a practice we all follow. But one of the things that we might need to allow people to do is actually delete their content you know, and, and have complete control over their past. And if we, we need to be okay with that. We really do. Okay? So I'm gonna um, stop, because I'm at time. And even though we're at a break, I hate going over. Uh, but I want to make one last quick point, and that is that uh, this is a fantastic book. If you don't have it, get it. This wonderful woman, um, Abby Smith Rumsey, who basically says that the fundamental purpose of recording our memories is to, to ensure that they live beyond our brief 
time here on Earth will be lost in the ephemeral digital landscape if we don't become our own data managers. So back to what Fred was saying earlier, I'm not advocating that we all become our own little personal archives, but we have to know how to make our content archival from its creation. And this is a skill set I think everyone needs to be teaching people going forward, and I don't think we're going to get a big argument about that. Thank you. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.